Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, February 16th, 2024. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. The annual Winter Institute, organized by the American Booksellers Association, wrapped up this week in Cincinnati, Andrew. And judging by the coverage in PW, it was a lively event. Yeah, reports are that this was the highest attended Winter Institute yet. Some 950 or so booksellers attended. And remember, attendance is actually limited. There's three days of professional programs and author talks. It's a really popular event. More than 100 authors came uh, to mix with and talk with indie booksellers from around the country. Uh, and as you said, you can read all of our very good and very in-depth coverage, uh, including some great author talks and a lot of reporting on issues that are important in the bookselling community, including an issue that really hung over the meeting this year, a very thorny issue, and that is whether or not the ABA should be uh, addressing more strongly the war on Hamas and Gaza and you know diversity and equity issues. And it certainly made for some tense but important exchanges at the show. At the ABA's Community Forum on February 14th, Andrew, booksellers debated those issues extensively. Yes, so our Natalie Optebeck and Claire Kirk were in attendance, and you can read that story on the PW website. And pretty much in no uncertain terms, a number of ABA members expressed dismay and frustration that no conference sessions at this year's Winter Institute engaged directly with what they called the elephant in the room, which is Israel's war on Hamas and the terrible toll on Palestinians in Gaza. Now, I might point out that this year's program was almost certainly locked by the time uh, the devastating attacks happened in October and the subsequent military assault began. Nevertheless, I take their point. Things can change. Uh, There is a tragedy, a crisis unfolding in the region, and that has certainly been top of mind for many in the publishing community, and I expect it will continue to be, uh, which is really part of a broader conversation in recent years about politics and publishing, right? Politics in the publishing business. As our Natalie Optebeck reported, many booksellers uh, rose to call for the ABA to declare support for an Israeli ceasefire. And some connected the organization's silence and inaction on this issue to what they feel is a more general lack of recognition of marginalized bookseller concerns. The the session began with a a speaker reading a poem by Noor Hindi. And after that, ABA CEO Allison Hill, who was seated on stage with the board, acknowledged that that was difficult for a lot of the community to hear. And she acknowledged that these are important things to talk about. She called it a painful topic. Board member Danny Kane, who's the co-owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas, emphasized that the ABA board does realize just how urgent this issue is to booksellers. And indeed, just ahead of the forum, Booksellers got together for an informal meeting on the crisis unfolding in Gaza during a scheduled break, and apparently more than 70 ABA members, including some board members and staffers, showed up to the ad hoc meeting. And, you know, the question was basically like, if we're not going to take a stand, who are we? If we're not political as booksellers, then who are we? Several ABA members at the end of the ad hoc meeting suggested the ABA undertake a bookstore coalition akin to Publishers for Palestine, uh, which provides resources and just this week offered a, a free downloadable chapbook, Poems for Palestine. And again, a number of booksellers were calling for, quote, actionable steps that will show that the ABA leadership is both hearing and facilitating the constituents' diverse goals and aims. And look, we're going to be seeing this exact scene continue to play out because this is a real 
a very complicated issue for pretty much every publisher and any representative organization in what are some really complicated and frightening times. Uh, I think the ABA and other organizations are doing their best to try to figure out the best path forward for their organizations, but it is a complicated and difficult moment. Um, I think not only for booksellers, but across the industry, you know, certainly there's going to be a lot more to come, but not only for ABA, but for other organizations too. Uh, but there's also a sense that this really sort of intense interaction at the ABA uh, community forum, as one bookseller noted in our coverage, might have pushed the needle. And as the meeting concluded, ABA CEO Allison Hill told booksellers that she was taking it all in and that she really appreciated people speaking up. PW has a report on PubWest 2024, which concluded last week in Phoenix, and where another tense topic, the impact of generative AI, was on the agenda. Yeah, our Ed Nawaka was there. Always an interesting event, PubWest. Uh, you know, so PubWest doesn't have a defined territory, but it primarily represents publishers, obviously, PubWest from the Western United States and Canada. And the conference focuses, you know, largely on the daily ins and outs of publishing. You know, a broad range of subjects come up. And you can read about the, the program this year online. Ed did a great report. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about retail and new opportunities for regional publishers to reach the market. But as you know, the conference was also bookended and, and included a number of discussions on the growing role of AI and the concerns and the opportunities there. Uh, the discussion included a conference keynote that was delivered by Anna Tambulian and Vincent Serpico of Decision Tree AI, which is an Arizona-based consulting company. And they offered an overview of how ChatGPT users can create everything from jacket art to marketing copy and, you know, how publishers might use AI to conceive things like a continuation of a popular book series. And the show's closing session provided a series of short reflections on the impact of AI on the industry, which ranged from, I'd say, fearful to hopeful. <laughs> and some of them were sort of resigned. But, you know, the major fear running through the conference was that AI would replace publishers and writers. Uh, it's a fear we've heard from a number of content creators. But despite those fears, you know, one panelist, Thad McElroy, who's a PW contributing editor and a PubWest panelist, asserted that his position is that, you know, we need less concern right now and more exploration by publishers, right? They want, you know, the, the concerns are valid, obviously, but publishers really need to be looking at how they can embrace AI's potential. And basically, Thad said, look, with all technology, we've been here before, and yet the book survives. But throughout the conference, a number of publishers complained of problems that were being created by AI, including the problem of counterfeit books. Ronnie Hurst, who's the president of Books of Discovery, which is a publisher that specializes in physical therapy books in Boulder, Colorado, described how these counterfeiters had posted fake copies of her company's best-selling title, uh, Trail Guide to the Body, on Amazon. And she talked about the difficulties of having it removed or otherwise rectifying the situation. And it's not as simple as you might think. It's very difficult because you can't just go online, uh, Ronnie explained, and give those fake editions bad reviews without also giving your own author a bad review. So interesting topic there for sure. On the more hopeful side, some see new opportunities in the AI technologies. You know, One mantra that was repeated in various iterations throughout the conference was that AI won't replace publishers and writers. Publishers and writers using AI will replace publishers and writers. So I think that's a nuanced view. We'll see if that is uh, how that bears out in the future. Uh, there was also a panel discussion in, in which one agent noted that her main concern was protecting the copyrights of her clients, stating that in her view, AI was built with a disregard for consent. 
And that's really scary for an industry in which consent is very important, central. Permissions are actually a revenue stream in the publishing industry. So all in all, a very interesting report from PubWest. Definitely check it out on the PW side. It was written by my colleague Ed Nawaka. And I think it's fair to say that you know the discussion around AI continues to bounce between fear and opportunity. A federal judge in California, in fact, this week significantly trimmed a consolidated lawsuit filed by authors. He dismissed a host of plaintiff claims. Yes, yeah, so our listeners will recall that, you know, back in July, lawyers told me in my report that back when these author suits were first filed, that they sort of faced an uphill battle in the courts. And that has certainly proven to be the case so far, and certainly this week in the California courtroom. Uh, the latest development is that a federal judge in California dismissed four of six claims made by these author groups in what is now a consolidated lawsuit alleging that OpenAI infringes their copyrights. But this is not the end of the road for those dismissed claims, we should note, because the court has given the authors a month to amend their complaint. And most notably, the suit's core claim of direct infringement uh, remains. In fact, OpenAI, who's being sued by the authors here, did not even seek to dismiss that claim, which I think is very telling and which we can come back to. So what is gone from the suit as of now? Well, four counts, including claims of vicarious infringement, uh, a claim that OpenAI removed or altered copyright management information, a negligence claim under the unfair competition law, and an unjust enrichment claim. The court did allow a fourth claim of unfairness under the unfair competition law to proceed, uh, holding that if true, the authors claims that OpenAI used their copyrighted works to train their language models for commercial profit may indeed constitute an unfair practice. Uh, the court gave the plaintiffs until March 13th to file an amended complaint. So I have a feeling we'll be talking about this suit again in the coming weeks. Our listeners will also recall that there were three of these major lawsuits by authors in California, all with nearly identical claims, right? The claims are that these AI firms, which not only includes OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT, but also Meta, you know, the creators of Llama, that they're infringing copyrights by using unauthorized copies of books and articles to train their AI models. And this includes allegedly using copies of books and training uh, that were scraped from notorious pirate sites. And in a housekeeping note on this litigation, we should note that, again, there were three of these suits. They're now down to one. They've all been consolidated. The first two suits were filed in June and July. The a third action was filed in September, all filed by the Joseph Severi Law Firm on the West Coast. Lots of big name, name plaintiffs, including Michael Chabin and Sarah Silverman. Meanwhile, there's more action on the AI litigation front on the East Coast. Uh, two suits have been filed in New York, one suit in September by the Authors Guild and a number of best-selling authors, including David Baldacci and John Grisham, uh, and a suit filed by the New York Times at the end of the year. But in a February 8th filing, the Severi Law Firm, which represents the authors on the West Coast, the California cases, actually filed a motion to stay the cases in New York raising concerns that the defendants may try to use uh, the East Coast litigation as a way to sort of form shop for a preferential schedule or you know, to use competing rulings uh, in one form versus another. So will that litigation go forward? It's right now it's scheduled to begin in April uh, with a hearing. So that's something to keep an eye on. Why do you think OpenAI isn't challenging the direct infringement claim? 
yeah, I think I can answer that pretty quickly because they think they're going to win and they want the precedent or they think that they're going to settle favorably and the litigation you know, helps them to get there. As I reported back in July, when these suits were first filed, every copyright lawyer I spoke to agreed that there is ample case law here to suggest fair use, including the Google case, uh, with one lawyer noting that if Google's bulk copying and display of tens of millions of books was comfortably found to be fair use, it's very hard to see how using books to train AI would not be fair use, even though, and we should stress this, fair use cases are notoriously fact-dependent and hard to predict. So not making any predictions here, but there is a lot of confidence among AI companies, shall we say, that their use of these books is fair use. Uh, we'll see if that you know holds to be true as these cases unfold. So once again, stay tuned. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor, thanks for joining me today with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on CCC's podcast, Impact Factor is a global standard for measuring the influence and importance of scholarly journals. Published by Clarivate, this calculation is critical for authors when considering where to publish research, as well as for librarians when deciding which publications to hold in collections. Dr. Nandita Kudiri is Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief for Web of Science at Clarivate, with responsibility for the journal citation reports that make the basis for the impact factor. A half century after they began, she tells me why the GIF is still relevant. Firstly, the GIF is underpinned by data from the Web of Science, and there's an appreciation that for a metric to have value, it needs to be derived from a high-quality data source. And secondly, the GIF has a long history, and the academic community values stability and values continuity. And in this way, the GIF has become deeply ingrained into the scholarly publishing landscape. The GIF was introduced in the pre-digital age, when the rapidly growing number of journals created a sense of information overload. And there was a need for an indicator of scholarly impact to help identify the must-read journals. But in that area, we weren't seeing the industrial scale levels of fraudulent behavior we see today. And so there wasn't much need for an indicator of trust. Nowadays, we see a great need for indicators of trustworthiness at the journal level. And by extending the GIF to all of the journals in the Web of Science, we've provided such an indicator. Beyond impact factor to trust in scholarship. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to Velocity of Content wherever you go for podcasts and don't miss an episode of the show. The CCC podcast is also available on the CCC YouTube channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.